Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to Liturgical Libations and Lamentations. Here at Libations and Lamentations, we believe that all people are theologians, whether they like it or not. As such, we hope this podcast will help to refine and shape the theology of the Church, particularly lay men and women, toward a more orthodox and articulate expression. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to Liturgical Libations and Lamentations. I'm AJ Nolte, here again with my co-host, Jay Thomas. How are you today, Jay? I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking, AJ. We're actually recording at my house this time, um, after my daughter's birthday party, uh, not in the normal location, which is my office at Regent. And so, uh, as always, to get started, let's begin with a word of prayer. Jay, will you lead us? Absolutely. AJ, may the Lord be with you. And with your spirit. O God, who wonderfully created, and yet more wonderfully restored, the dignity of human nature, grant that we may share the divine life of him who humbled himself to share our humanity, your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So today we are continuing our discussion of To Be a Christian, the New Anglican Catechism, the Catechism of the Anglican Church of North America. And we're focusing today in on the Apostles' Creed. One of the challenges in thinking about how to do the Creed in a podcast is where do you split things? Uh, What's the point of division? And so what we've decided to do is we're gonna do this as a two-part session. Uh, Today, this first podcast that's coming out is going to be on the Trinity. So we're gonna talk about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then the next podcast, we are going to focus on the idea of the Holy Catholic Church. I think there are a couple of reasons to distinguish those uh, different elements. When we talk about Trinitarian theology, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and our beliefs about that, what we're talking about is essentially the agreed-upon doctrine of the Christian Church. If you listen to this week's podcast and you're a Reformed Baptist, hopefully you're not going to hear anything that is surprising or unusual or different. But next week, when we talk about the Holy Catholic Church, you are going to hear something different. It's, we start getting into some aspects of Anglicanism that are more distinctive. So there's, I think, something to be said for separating that out. And then also the fact that this week we're talking about the doctrine of God and who God is. And next week we're talking about the church, which is essentially how, God, um, how, how the doctrine of God relates to us today. Um, and I think there's, there's a natural separation there. Yeah, I think you can also... Um, <clears throat> You can tie it more into, you know, the first part of the articles of the creeds deal with how God has revealed himself to be. Yes. Whereas the last articles of the creed deal with how we <clears throat> live in response to how God has revealed himself. So, as AJ mentioned, across the uh, Christian traditions, any Christian tradition has to affirm the Trinitarian nature of God. That's part of being Christian and not a cult. Um, And so we have to have agreement on what the revealed nature of God is. How we respond to the real revealed nature of God is where you will see some particulars. But I think what we're hopefully going to point to is that there actually is a consistent witness to how that revelation is understood and then lived out. Um, But you will see differences. And depending on which tradition you're listening to this from, there might be certain things that you emphasize more than others. And you might realize that there are parts of the tradition that you've never encountered but that are actually part of that holy Catholic and apostolic church that the creeds delve into. 
All right, so let's begin by delving into the um, Apostles' Creed. And maybe, Jay, just to start us off, why don't you read the sections of the Apostles' Creed that we're going to cover today, and then we can delve into them step by step. Okay, so we're going to go through, um, as AJ mentioned, the Apostles' Creed. Now, if you're familiar with church history, you'll know that the Apostles' Creed is the most primitive of the creeds, um, and the Nicene Creed is, in essence, its more fleshed-out version. And so we're going to draw upon the Nicene Creed for a lot of what we're doing. But as far as just the creed itself, um, would you like me to just actually read yeah. the creed? Yeah, let's just do that to start. All right, so these are the these are the tenets of the creed that I'm going to go through today. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I think one thing before we get into the members of the Trinity and and some of the questions from the catechism that go along with that, one thing that's worth saying a word about here is this phrase, I believe, credo. Uh, in is that Latin? Yeah, Latin. I think. Latin. Um, so when we t- we're talking about I believe <clears throat> here, it's not just I intellectually assent to the proposition that there is one God, the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. The creed is meant to be a public proclamation of faith, um, a public pro- proclamation of trust. Almost the pledge of. We could almost think of it less as sort of a. a philosophical proposition and more akin to the Pledge of Allegiance. So when we say, I believe in the creed, we are expressing our faith, we are pledging our trust in this person, in this person of God. Um, And oftentimes the creed can be, and confession of the creed can be something that can get you into trouble as a Christian. Um, One of the aspects of Christian persecution that you see in the Roman times and the Apostles' Creed is, is almost certainly in some form exists during the, the early Roman persecutions, um, renunciation of the creed, renunciation of these beliefs in a public way was something that they were trying to push Christians to do. And so publicly confessing this was something that could be a life or death statement. And so I think it's, it's worth just keeping in mind when we, we say, I believe, um, what we are talking about here really is a, a pledge, a commitment um, of your life and of your trust. Any, anything you want to add on that, Jay? Or? No, I think you hit everything um, that we want to talk about, what it means to say, I believe. And maybe I would say there are there are some Christian traditions that push back against the idea of a creed. Um, and, and I can see maybe where they're coming from. You know, I, I grew up in some more evangelical circles, and and the idea there is that you know the creed is not explicitly word for word found in Scripture, and so why would I believe it? But anytime you say you believe in anything, you're in essence creating a creed, and so not having a formulaic version that's apostolic and comes to us from the early church. Um, rather than being something extra to scripture is actually a very helpful interpretive lens to see scripture. Um, yeah, so. I yeah, that's that's a good point. And I think for, for some of our listeners who are maybe more from that background, I think it's helpful to point out there are a couple of creedal statements in the New Testament. Uh, so I would argue Colossians 1 
Um, there's, there's a creedal statement there. It starts with, he is the image of the invisible God. Uh, in Philippians 2, um, so that's Colossians 1. I want to say it starts with 15. Uh, I don't have it right in front of me. Uh, Philippians 2, I believe we're starting at 6 or 7, where it talks about, for though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Uh, this is also a, a creedal statement. Might be, might even have been sung. Um, could could be a liturgical hymn, but there are sort of these primitive creedal affirmations um, in the Bible, and we t- we also see in Romans this. Um, Paul talks about the idea of confessing, not only believing in the in your mouth, but confessing or uh, believing in your heart, but confessing with your mouth. Uh, and that conf- that public confession of belief is sort of what the the creed is meant to uh, define and clarify. All right, well, with that said, let's actually jump into the Trinitarian Articles of the Creed. Um, So we're going to be starting, if you actually have your catechism to be a Christian with you, we're going to be starting with question 39 as our initial jumping off point. So question 39 asks, according to Holy Scripture, what is the nature and character of God? And so for the answer to this question, the catechism draws on two specific aspects in order to open up the idea of God himself to you. So it says, God is love, sharing an eternal communion of love between the three persons. God loves and mercifully (coughs) redeems fallen creation. Also, God is holy. God is utterly transcendent, good, righteous, and opposed to all sin and evil. God's love is holy. God's holiness is loving. So those ideas, um, I thought were a really good place to jump off uh, that idea of both God's love is holy and God's holiness is loving. But also the, um, I was listening to a podcast uh, called On Script just yesterday and they were talking about the idea of justice and mercy, um, which tie in well with this. You know, if you think of mercy and love being kind of seen in a similar light and holy and holiness and justice being in a similar light. You know, so God's love is holy, God's holiness is loving. Well, also God's mercy is just, but God's, Justice is also merciful. Um, So we see within God, not necessarily a paradox, but the actual, um, the resolution to tension. Um, I'm a musician, and one of the most fulfilling aspects of music in any sense is when you can resolve a chord. You bring together tension, but the tension has its, it bears itself to completion through resolution. And that's where, you know, justice and mercy in our own mind can be seen in tension. But God is the person who actually brings that tension to resolution. Um, so I've always, I've always found that a helpful image. But these, these com- not competing terms, but these terms of holiness and love, but also mercy and justice. I think it's good to see them in tension, but also to see God as the completion of that tension. Jay, I think a musical chord might be the first analogy for the Trinity I've heard that can't easily slide into heresy. Well, I try to avoid heresy, so I'm glad that that's, we, uh, and, and that's we hard, got ourselves. That's there. hard to do with Trinitarian analogies. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think that there's there's a couple of, of points here that are also relevant. One is that when we talk about the threeness and oneness of God, which is that sort of at the heart of the triune nature of uh, you know the Trinity, God's oneness is, I think, in some ways linked to holiness. You know, there's a sense in which monotheism has this ultimately transcendent God. Uh, to be transcendent is to be radically one, in a sense. But God's threeness is equally necessary if we're going to talk about God's innermost nature as love. Love must be relational. 
Um, you cannot love if there is not a, a, both a, a lover and a beloved. And so the, you have to have persons. Uh, and so the threeness of God is, is necessary to um, God's love, to God's innermost nature being love. And the oneness of God I think, is, is necessary to God's nature being holy. So this question really illustrates, I think, the necessity of the Trinity. Because if we're going to say both of these things about God at the same time, and we have to, then I think we have to say both that God is three and that God is one. All right, so we'll move on to the actual, um, what the Apostles' Creed says about the first person of the Trinity, the Father. Um, So first it calls um, the first person Father, um, and then also says he's both Almighty and the creator of heaven and earth. AJ, would you like to take the concept of fatherhood, and then I'll talk about uh, creator? Sure, yeah, and I think we'll kind of kick it back and forth on these two a little bit. So I think it's interesting that God starts off, talk, starts off, the first thing that we hear about God is that he's father. And so this is, again, it instantly is relational. Uh, God is defining himself in relation to us. And that is really uh, interesting. It, it talks about, it, it sort of speaks to, the inner relationality of God, that God's innermost nature is relationship and the, and the love of God, because a relationship of father is a, a loving relationship in its, its ideal form. And of course, God himself defines that ideal form. God is the, the perfect ideal father. All other fatherhood is a, relax, a reflection of God rather than the other way around. Um, and so when we talk about God as father, uh, we talk about him as both, uh, it, it's a combination of love and justice and, and love and authority. Um, fatherhood obviously means slightly different things in, in different cultures, but it almost always seems to circle back to these two ideas that a father is loving and a father also has a certain type of authority in the family and, and over children. Um, and that those two things, to be a good father, is and Jay and I both have small children, um, which is really a good school of theology. Having toddlers in, in the house is a good way to learn theology on a practical level. It's also a really good way to learn political theory, but that's for a different podcast. Um, I would say that part of being a father is always holding that those two things in tension, right? It's that when, you are, when you're laying down the law, you have to do it in love. Uh, and when you're, when you're loving, when, when you're you know showing love to your child, you have to also keep in mind that the law you know that the law the justice is there, and that's for the good of the child really. It's for the good of um, of your children. So I think those are some intrinsic aspects of the nature of God the Father that we see reflected just from the fact that He calls Himself Father. So there's a huge amount of self definition of God God defining Himself and revealing Himself to us simply in that name Father. Do you want to add? To yeah. That? No, well, the only thing I would really want to add is. In and I, not ne- even necessarily contemporary. I mean, maybe this has been batted back and forth across the centuries, but especially in the contemporary church, there's a a movement um, to call God both Father and Mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we could spend maybe an entire episode um, looking at the pros and cons of both sides. But I think where we'd want to land today at the very least, is we only know what we've been taught and we only know what we've been, um, what we have the authority to know. And what we do know is that God has revealed himself to us consistently over and again as father. Um, you know, so this is not a rejection um, of the beauty of womanhood. 
Um, it's not a rejection of even the mothering aspects of God's nature. You know, God creates in his image, male and female. So that's a, you know, there is a tension there um, that fatherhood doesn't fully encompass. But we do know that God has revealed himself to us as father and not as mother. So we can have a conversation maybe about attributes and how we think about those attributes. But it's important that as Orthodox Christians, we have to land ourselves consistently in this camp saying, you know, I only know so much has been revealed to me. And what has been revealed to me is that God is father, because that's how he that's how he refers to himself. Um, and that's how Christ refers to the first person of the Trinity when he's on the cross and he cites Psalm 21, you know, Abba, Father, you know, why have you forsaken me? You know, there's, we have to refer to him by the way he's revealed himself to us. And so that's, I think, the only thing more I would add on that. Yeah, and, and I think one of the the questions that might be worth coming coming back to in the next podcast is this question of, Historically, the church has has sort of had the, the idea of God as Father and the church as Mother, um, and I, I wonder if some of this tension um, of wanting to sort of move away from that. I'm, I think some of it has to do with what's happening in culture right now. We have an epidemic of fatherlessness, certainly in uh, the United States, um, and we could have probably a whole podcast on that in and of itself and, and the implications that that has for the church and, and for everything moving forward. And so that, you know, it can be very difficult, I think, for people who've grown up without a, a father, without a, a real dad in their lives to understand God as father or, or who've had a father who was, you know, abusive. Um, as fallen humans, we all fail to reflect that as we should. But I think, I wonder if also there's a sense of, we've kind of lost that idea of the church's mother um, and maybe lost some of that concept of the church as a place that's that really is providing that comfort that nurturing um element and sort of reflecting that beauty of, of femininity so um maybe that's something we can we can talk about in a future podcast as well all right so moving on from father let's uh look at the idea of creator um so i like the question uh so this is question 45 in the catechism how um oh sorry question 44 why do you call God the Father Creator? I call God the Father Creator because he is the sole designer and originator of everything that exists. He creates and sustains all things through his word and gives life to all creatures through his spirit. Um, so even this idea of creator works itself into a Trinitarian concept. So God the Father as creator does not create... Um, in separation from himself but creation is actively uses both his word or the son and his spirit but i think also aj aj and i were talking about this a little bit before the show we do show prep sometimes sometimes but he did a really good job of you know mentioning how understanding us ourselves as creations of the creator is that we have no agency of our own to create apart from God. Um, but in the same way, as the as the image of the creator, we inherently have a creative aspect to our being. Um, so it's this really beautiful image where God himself is the creator. And as the creator, we, we can't even understand or comprehend an existence without God. Uh, because everything that we look at, you know, that's where I think it, you know, 
to me, you know, personally, atheism crumbles. And it's because the idea of, of truly an existence apart from something seems to make no sense. I mean, just everything we do requires an impetus. Life requires impetus. There has to be a movement behind something. You know, I work with uh, nuclear physics and, and you have to have a particle to begin the chain reaction. You can't start from nothing. And so the idea of having the creator who is outside of the creation to provide the impetus for creation is, is a crucial aspect. Um, and I think it's important both on the realm of apologetics, but also on the realm of just understanding who we are also in it, reference to the creator. Um, the other aspect though is that idea of we have both creativity in the as part of our likeness of God, but we also have a responsibility to care and steward the rest of the creation. Um, you know, in the same way that the father-mother debate is controversial right now, um, so is the idea of stewardship and creation. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think ironically, maybe you know, AJ and I would fall very firmly on the more you could say traditionally conservative point when it comes to the idea of father. But we also maybe fall more on the uh, politically conservative camp, maybe when it comes to how we steward creation. And that's because it's part of our um, responsibility as stewards to tend for the creation, um, which is vital for us to understand. Yeah, so I would say a couple of things. One, in terms of creation, um, affirming God as, as creator means that creation can't legitimate its own ends. Um, you know, in, in the ancient world, this means things like the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, the oceans are not divine beings. They're created things. They're creatures in that, not in the biological sense, but in that old uh, original English sense of created, created things. Um, but that also means that, you know, even as, as we say, we can't deify nature. We can't deify creation. Um, we, we, don't, we should not worship these created things. But on the other hand, it also limits us. It says that we are limited in our ability to uh, authoritatively change these things because they were created by God. Uh, and so there, there's some authority given to us as people who are uh, made in his, as his image. There's some co-creation authority there, but it's bounded. It's bounded authority. And it always needs to go back to the idea of we are stewards. Uh, this is not something that rightfully belongs to us. It's something that we've been given uh, dominion over, but that dominion is contingent. And so I think when we talk about responsible stewardship, for example, in terms of responsible environmental stewardship, I think um, we need to do that keeping in mind that responsible stewardship needs to go along with the idea of human flourishing because we have responsibility, especially to those of our fellow creations that are made in God's image. Uh, but I don't necessarily think those two things have to be mutually exclusive. But I think the other thing that's important about that is the idea that as creations, there are limits on our ability to self-create. So we have been created within certain bounds, bounds that are established for us by God. And there is, again, some ability to change ourselves, obviously. Uh, change growth development happens and it's something that in fact we, we encourage and part of the purpose of the Christian life is to encourage that type of change growth and development but 
we cannot be the gods of our own lives. We cannot re- fundamentally recreate ourselves in the way that God uh, created us. Um, and I don't necessarily know if we would really want to fully remake ourselves in our own image and rather than being in the image of God. And so when you start thinking today um, about movements like posthumanism and transhumanism that are sort of thinking about this idea of we need to transcend our humanity and become something else, I think as Christians we need to be very cautious about that idea. Not necessarily cautious about the idea that we can't have human improvement and, and do things in a very you know subtle way to make life better for ourselves and for other humans, but this idea that really our goal should be to transcend the bounds of humanity that were given to us, I think we need to be very, very cautious about that. Um, there's a recent book that came out a couple of years ago called Homo Deus by Yuval Harari. And it talks about um, humanity's attempt to deify ourselves. And I think that that's extraordinarily dangerous from a Christian perspective. And that's not to say that participation in the divine, that in a sense deification, is intrinsically something that is is not something we can talk about as Christians. There's an entire school of thought in Eastern Orthodox theology that really focuses on that idea of deification, but it is through the work of God, not necessarily self-deification. Um, and so I think that's a really vital thing for us to keep in mind, particularly in our current cultural moment. And I think the last thing before we move on to the second article, the Creed and Christology, is the concept of that God is the creator, both of heaven and earth, which maybe today is less of a relevant topic, but when it's put in there, um, it's easy for us to think of God as a creator of earth. Um, you know, so everything that we see around us, he is a creator of that, but that he also stands outside of the entire created order, which would mean the powers of heaven. Um, so when we think of the spiritual realm, um, angels, archangels, cherubim, seraphim, and, you know, even demons and the devil, those are, you could say, even the, you know, the spiritual realm, the forces of heaven, and God stands outside of that as well. He is the creator both of the spiritual and the heavenly realm in the same light that he is the creator of the earthly realm. Um, so that's why those, those, it's not just, it doesn't say he's the creator of earth, but he's the creator of heaven and earth. You know, he is, it's not a, you know, yin and yang, God and the devil, this opposite opposing forces, but rather God is outside all as the creator of all. And I think with that, unless you want to jump in real quick. Yeah, the only thing I was going to say uh, to that is um, if you do have a copy of really any of the, the Anglican prayer books, or you can look it up, look up the, the Te Deum Laudamus in, in the morning prayer. Uh, the, it's, it's one of the great Anglican hymns of praise. Uh, it can be said or chanted in morning prayer. And it really emphasizes this idea of all creation praising God um, and, and pledging its allegiance to God. And it brings out explicitly, you know, all angels, all the powers of heaven, the cherubim and seraphim sing in endless praise, holy, 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 Lord God, almighty creator of heaven and earth. I mean, there's, it's, it's really profoundly sort of represented of exactly what Jay is just talking about. So it uh, might be something worth looking up. And if you're thinking about God as creator, you know, that is a really profound uh, hymn that is worth reading through and kind of soaking in. All right. So with that, I think we're going to jump into article two of the creed, which is, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Um, and we're going to begin to look into Christology and I'm going to, I'm going to give a warning right as we were transitioning to father and son uh 
one of AJ's neighbors decided it was a good time to start using the Weed Whacker right outside of our recording space. So if you hear a weird buzzing in the background, I apologize, but hopefully it's not us coming from our microphones, but actually from the the guy with the weed whacker next door. In fairness, it is an absolutely beautiful yard, uh, afternoon to be doing yard work. So. Absolutely. And if you don't live in the Norfolk area of Virginia, it's approximately, oh, you know, 71 degrees, um, no humidity. So absolutely beautiful day. Um, so, right. so I think when we think about Article 2, there's, there's two really important aspects of Christology. And we're not going to spend as much time on Christology as, for example, the church councils have done. You know, it's one of the most exhaustively defined and discussed uh, articles, and it's obviously the longest one um, as compared to the other two. But what I think, there's two really important things to keep in mind and to uh, note here. One is the aspect of Christ is fully God and fully man, the absolute necessity of that, of who Christ is, so the nature of, of Christ in the incarnation. And the second is the historical reality and the historicity of Christ. And this is something the creed is, is uh, at pains to emphasize. So um, re- I would say real quickly on the, the first point, the incarnation. Union with God in Christ is the ultimate goal for which humanity is created. And for that to be achieved, particularly given the effects of sin, which we talked about in previous podcasts, you have to have Christ as both fully God, so he's fully a member of the Trinity, and is also fully man. He's fully able to identify with one of us in all ways but sin. And so the the article reflects that dual reality when it talks about how Christ is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. All right. And the other, um, I was going to go a little bit, the, the first article um, or the beginning says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. And this is a part that's less specified in the Apostles' Creed than it is in the Nicene Creed, but is the idea that even though we refer to Christ as the Son, it doesn't mean that we see him as a a fellow creature. Um, so we don't see him as something else, some someone who was created, like we were created. But rather, the Nicene Creed does a really good job of emphasizing that he is begotten. Um, so in that sense, he he does have legitimate sonship from the father, but that while he's created, he is, or sorry, excuse me, while he is begotten, he is not, not made. created yeah. or not made is the wording I think is used. Um, and so that's a really important distinction there that we, we don't see ourselves as fellow creatures with the son, but rather that in the same way that we stand completely and separately apart from the father, we also stand completely and separately apart from the son in his Godhead. Um, And the other things I want to draw out, uh, this is question 50 and question 51 of the catechism, is when we say in the creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, what does that actually mean? Um, So Jesus is the English transliteration of the Hebrew word Yeshua, um, or what we would oftentimes refer to as Joshua. And I think this is, I don't know, my, I was blown away when I realized that Joshua and Jesus were the same name, um, and that we just literally have English translations that separate them. Um, I think it's really important in the Old Testament as you read the story of Joshua, that the story of Joshua prefigures the story of Jesus, because they're the same name. They mean God saves. And if you look throughout the um, Old Testament, uh, 
names have real meaning. Um, so naming the Son of God, Yeshua, is supposed to immediately draw you back constantly to the story of Yeshua or Joshua in the Old Testament. Um, and the second part of his name is Christ. And so Christ comes from Christos, which is the Greek word which means anointed one, or which in the Old Testament or in Hebrew, we're going to use the word Messiah. Um, so Christ, Messiah, same word, uh, different languages, but they are supposed to really point us to both the um, kingly authority and also the priesthood of Jesus. Um, so the only two people in the Old Testament who are anointed are priests and kings. Um, and Christ is referred to as the great high priest and also the king. Um, and so that being both Jesus or Yeshua, God saves, and the anointed one are crucial in our ath- in our understanding of who Christ is. Yeah, so I would just say very quickly on the Joshua typology. So if we think about the spiritual meaning of the story of Joshua, uh, Joshua is sent in to cleanse the land so that God can establish, or, you know, and specifically to cleanse the land of sin, you know, the idolatry, the idolatry of the Canaanites, so that God can establish his covenant people, Israel, in their promises. And Christ has come to cleanse us of our sins so that he can establish his covenant community, the church. So there really is kind of a direct um, typological parallel between Jesus and Joshua. All right, so AJ already talked on the point that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Uh, The next article is that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. AJ, would you like to talk about that? Yeah, so this is interesting. Why is this random Roman bureaucrat um, mentioned in the creeds? There's three historical figures mentioned in the Apostles' Creed in terms of uh, human beings. Jesus Christ, who's both fully God and fully man. The Virgin Mary, who's his mom. And Pontius Pilate, an otherwise obscure Roman bureaucrat uh, who was governor of the province of uh, Syria, Palestina, where Jesus is crucified. Why is this important? Because it fully roots the story of Christ in a specific historical moment. Pontius Pilate is a real, multiply tested historical figure. Uh, we know when he was, we know what he did, we know a little bit about him, although not much. Um, and he is, he, he is a minor but historical Roman functionary. And it's under his authority that Christ is crucified. And so that reminds us that when we're talking about all of this high theology that's really important of the incarnation, that Christ is fully God and fully man, that is rooted in a very real historical reality. Christ is not someone that can be abstracted, uh, is not just a, a reality that can be spiritualized. He really was born, was really crucified under a real Roman official, and really uh, suffered and died. And, of course, then we go on to the culmination of both the historical and the incarnational reality of Christ in the next two articles, or next two sections of the article. Yeah, so moving on, we go to that Jesus was crucified, died, was buried, and he descended to the dead. Um, So when we we first really understand... um, sin. We talked about in, I think, our first episode that sin is us turning away from God and that the the punishment of sin is death. You know, So death is not an inherent aspect of creation, but rather is a punishment for sins. Um, and that, that's the inherent aspect of 
death and why it exists in the first place. So the question, why does the creed make a point of saying that Jesus died? Well, it makes this point to emphasize that Jesus undergoes the very penalty for sin that we are subject to. Um, So the penalty of sin is death. And so therefore, even though Christ is sinless, in order for him to pay the penalty for sin, he has to die, Um, which is why both it's emphasized and also why it occurred. Um, Now, why does the creed actually say that Jesus descended to the dead? Um, So this is actually a fun little thing that we could, if we wanted to, we could delve into for probably about 30 minutes where we talk about the difference between uh, death, Sheol, Hades, hell, all these different things. Um, maybe a bonus episode. Yeah, maybe a good bonus episode. But what the catechism picks up on, and I think we're going to leave it today. Um, so the translation of the creed that we have uses the word that he descended to the dead. And the reason that that's important is it it really emphasizes the fact of true death, that the spirit of Christ did not remain with his body, uh, but he fully, but it fully entered into the realm of death. First mm-hmm. um, Peter three jumps on this, and if uh, that's a great place for another tangent, um, so maybe we'll just do a, a podcast once on First Peter three, which is it would make for a great time. Sounds good. The only other note I wanted to make on that is the uh, element of sacrifice, which I think is important. All throughout the Old Testament, we see reference to the necessary of sacrifice, uh, the necessity of sacrifice to atone for sins. And all of these Old Testament sacrifices, beginning with the sacrifice of uh, the, you know, the Abraham sacrificing Isaac and then God provides the lamb, all of these things are types of the ultimate sacrifice that really will deal with the problem of sin, and that is Christ on the cross. And as in the Anglican Church, we say every week in the liturgy, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Uh, and so it is for the atonement of our sins that Christ makes his perfect sacrifice once for all. Uh, the reason I want to emphasize this is because it'll tee up some of the things that we're going to talk about next week when we talk about uh, the Holy Catholic Church. And part of that for Anglicans is this the idea of the sacraments. Um, but it's important, to I think, for now to keep in mind that when we talk about the fact that, crucified, that Christ was crucified, died, and was buried, it is a perfect sacrifice for uh, the atonement for our sins. Uh, and we'll get into that a little bit more next week. The next point that's important to look at is that on the third day, he rose again. Um, so AJ and I mentioned that we're the parents of young children, and I have been so frustrated recently that uh, it's seeming like every kid's book, every like Christian kid's book I can find, talks over and over about the death of Christ and how Christ died for us, and never talks about the fact that Christ rose for us. The resurrection is seemingly swept under the rug um, and is forgotten. Now, granted, I'm, I'm assuming most of that is just common parlance, the way we speak about things, but it's it's frustrating because actually Christ's death is crucial. We need to have it. We need to have this punishment uh, for our sins, but it's not the end of the story. The end of the story is the victorious resurrection of Christ. The fact that, as Paul says in his letters, death has been defeated. Death, where is your sting? You know, this... The resurrection is our hope, um, and that's both crucial and fundamental. But it also goes, you know, we've talked about um, how important the incarnation is to Christology. Um, the fact that Christ rose again in a bodily form, a bodily resurrection, 
is vital as we move on to the next tenet, which is that he has ascended into heaven. And, you know, this is a an interesting point of theology, which I legitimately never thought about until the last couple of years, um, because nobody, well, people should, but a lot of people don't preach on it. Um, but the fact that Christ ascends into heaven implies that he has retained his bodily form. And so the resurrected body that he inhabited on earth after the resurrection is the bodily form in which he sits at the right hand of the Father. And so as we look to our hope in the resurrection, you know, we can see that the bodily forms that we will inhabit after the resurrection are the same manner as the physical body that Christ currently inhabits at the right hand of the Father as we're speaking right now. I think that when we talk about the crucifixion and the resurrection, we can't separate them. And I think it is intrinsic to soteriology or theology of salvation. The crucifixion reminds us what we're saved from. We are saved from our sin by the crucifixion. But the resurrection and the ascension remind us what we are saved to. We are saved to participation in the divine relationship through Christ. And that is through his resurrection and his ascension. And the other thing is, I think the resurrection brings <clears throat> that divine reality and the historical reality that we talked about together. Um, the resurrection is the pivot point of history from a Christian sense. It really physically, historically happened. There really was an empty tomb. And it is the experience of the resurrection, really, in, in some sense, that seems like uh, it founds the church. You know, before this, there are people who are following Jesus, who are disciples, um, who are, are learning from him and taking in his teachings. But even from scripture, we can see they don't fully uh, really seem to have an understanding of it. But it's when they meet the risen Christ, and as we'll talk about in just a second, and yes, I'm setting this up as a transition, when they receive the Holy Spirit, uh, that they are confidently able to proclaim the fullness of the truth that they now understand. And so it's this, this ascension of, resurrection ascension of Christ and the descent of the Holy Spirit that founds the church. But before we go to the Holy Spirit, I, I, I do want to jump really quickly on the very last um, statement of the Apostles' Creed. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Um, and this goes to maybe a misperception that I've always had. Um, but when we die, AJ, immediately after death, what happens to us? Um, that's an interesting question. That is an interesting question. Why is that an interesting question? You know, my entire life, I thought it was very easy and clear. Uh, either you believe in Christ and go to heaven, you don't, you go to hell, end of the story, that's it. But what does scripture actually teach? Yeah, it teaches that uh, there will be a general resurrection and then that Christ will, will judge uh, the living and the dead. Yeah, that there's there's a general resurrection at the end of time and then um, and then Christ will judge. Absolutely, so what we, what we do know, uh, we don't know much about Hades and you know, that's a good thing. Um, you know, Hades would be the, the place of the dead. Um, we do know there are multiple instances in scripture where Christ, you know, I go to prepare a place for you. Um, you know, N.T. Wright does a good way of discussing that. The idea of paradise, um, in some ways is almost this, is a place in the presence of God in the interim stage, but it's not the end goal. The end goal arrives after the judgment. And so at the judgment, both the righteous and the unrighteous will be raised. And after that general resurrection, which everybody will go through, will be judged by Christ. Um, and it's from that judgment 
that we will then move on to the eternal states that God has prepared. So, so Jay, this question of what happens between the end of time and and our death and the the question of whether there's a middle state, do you think that might be a bonus episode? That would be a really good bonus episode. So moving on from there, let's jump into, I believe, in the Holy Spirit. This is a fairly uh, plain and unadorned um, reference in the Apostles' Creed. It's a little bit, there's a little bit more meat put on the bones in the Nicene Creed. What you find with the creeds, and we've talked about this previously, is that where there is controversy, there there is development. And what we see in the the Nicene Creed, which I'm, I'm not going to, uh, I'll, I'll restate very briefly what the Nicene Creed says. It says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, and in the Western Creed, and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. And so I think that... There are a couple of things to note about the Holy Spirit from this. Number one, the Holy Spirit is a person. Oftentimes, I think the Holy Spirit um, tends to be perceived as like a, a force that exists, that emanates out, and that's that's not um, an independent person. Uh, the Holy Spirit is, is sort of seen as, as the equivalent of spiritual gravity. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a third person of the Trinity. Um, and so sometimes when we think about the Holy Spirit, we can think about it in functionally a binatarian sense, in the sense that we're denying the, the personhood of the Holy Spirit and seeing it as sort of a, a force that comes out. Um, and Scripture teaches us that the Holy Spirit is a comforter, an advocate, a guide. Um, and so we, we see that in the description that comes from the, um, the Nicene Creed. And I think the other thing that's that's important is that, um, in a sense, the Holy Spirit really constitutes the church. We see this in Scripture. It's when the Holy Spirit comes down in Acts that the apostolic ministry uh, begins, and that the church, the community of the church begins. Yeah, and one thing that I've I found really interesting is there is a a small but maybe growing movement of people that. Um, that believe that the church in some way, shape, or form ceased to exist uh, between the apostolic age and the more recent past. Um, there are some signs of this in the, um, not signs, but there are you know some aspects of belief uh, come from the more charismatic movement beginning that the Holy Spirit departs from the church after the apostolic age until the Azusa Street revival. Um, and, and I would like to really push back against that and say that a belief like that is a disbelief in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, God tells us in Scripture that you know the gates of hell will not persevere against his church. And what is the church? But really the church is the life of the Spirit. And it's how we witness the work of the Spirit on a daily basis. So when we look at church history, what we're looking at is the tapestry that has been woven by the working of the Spirit. Yes, it's not all good, but the good is where we've turned away from the work of God. But we know that where the Spirit is, there is the body of Christ. And he's constituting that body of Christ here on earth, and that is the work of the Spirit. And that is the importance of the third person and an importance that I think has been overlooked in a large part of the Christian tradition, especially recently, maybe after the Reformation. Um, Ironically, when you look pre-Reformation, the Spirit gets a lot of attention. Um, but in the time of the Reformation, we, we begin to focus more on some doctrinal issues and nitty-gritties, and the actual work of the Spirit gets neglected, which is why you see things like the Azusa Street Revival 
a re-emphasizing of the Spirit, but it doesn't mean that the Spirit departed from his church. To believe that is a low view of the Spirit himself. I think it's also a low view of the church, and it's fairly ahistorical. Um, I think that we need to put uh, some of these modern charismatic expressions in a broader historical context, and if we do, what we'll find is not that this is something that you know maybe existed at the beginning of Christian history and is new, but we'll find this constant tug between sort of divine spiritual mystical experience, of which I think charismatic is a form of mysticism, on the one hand, and you know some of the the tensions that that can sometimes cause with a more doctrinal theological approach. And one of the cool things about being Anglican is that you can have both at the same time. Well, perfect. Is there anything else you want to say about the the Trinity, AJ? Uh, there are so many things that you could say, um, but I think, again, just going back to what we said at the beginning, the love and the holiness of God necessitate a belief in the Trinity, holding those two things in the dynamic tension that I think really uh, faith in, in the goodness of God requires. I think that really necessitates belief in the Trinity. Um, and it's it's such a, a wonderful and comforting doctrine to know that we as believers in and followers of Christ are invited into that and invited into that not in a way that will uh, destroy you know or annihilate the inner being of who we are but who will make that will make us our best selves as we participate in that divine relationship through Christ making us more ourselves while at the same time uh, uniting us in perfect love with our triune God all right well the next time we pick back up we're going to go through the rest of the Apostles Creed Um, and specifically delving with the understanding of the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. All right, should we close in prayer? Absolutely. AJ, may the Lord be with you. And with your spirit. O God, the King of glory, you have exalted your only Son, Jesus Christ, with great triumph to your kingdom in heaven. Do not leave us comfortless, but send us your Holy Spirit to strengthen us and exalt us to that place where our Savior Christ has gone before who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, in glory everlasting. Amen. Amen. This has been Liturgical Libations and Lamentations. We hope you will join us next time as we continue to weep and imbibe throughout the church's year.